Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Boris Kargalitsky. We're going to discuss the mood of the Russian people and just how might this war in Ukraine end. Uh, please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the web page. We can't do this without you on YouTube. Please subscribe and then come over to the website. And everybody, please, if you're not already, sign up on our email list. Be back in just a few seconds. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in the Ukraine war, an illegal Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There was no imminent threat against Russia from Ukraine, which, which would have been the only justification for war. No doubt NATO and the U.S. played a provocative role, and no doubt NATO should be disbanded. The U.S. and NATO continues to escalate and avoid compromise, but that does not change who is the aggressor in this war. The dead includes tens of thousands of Russian workers, recruited mostly from outside the big cities. How will this monstrous war end? Now joining us is Boris Kargolitsky. He's a well-known international commentator on Russian politics. Boris was a deputy to the Moscow City Soviet between 1990 and 93, during which time he was a member of the executive of the Socialist Party of Russia, co-founder of the Party of Labor, and advisor to the chairperson of the Federation of Independent Trade Unions of Russia. Previously, he was a student of art criticism and was imprisoned for two years for anti-Soviet activities. Boris's books include Empire of the Periphery, Russia and the World System and Russia under Yeltsin and Putin, neoliberal autocracy, and new realism, new barbarism, the crisis of capitalism. In 2021, Boris was sentenced to 10 days in jail for sharing content on social media promoting unpermitted protests against results of Russia's recent parliamentary elections. In fact, if I have it right, Boris has the distinction of being put in jail by every Russian government uh, in, since and including Gorbachev. Thanks for joining me again, Boris. Thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be with you, Paul. So let's start with what is the mood of the Russian people. We're, we're reading in the Western press that maybe 200,000 Russian soldiers have died. I know I don't know if that number is realistic, but they're saying it could be another 200,000. That's if the Western press is to be believed. And of course, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have died, both women, uh, women, children, uh, volunteer soldiers, professional soldiers. Uh, what's the mood of the Russian people? Have, have they had enough of this? I think the mood of the people is very confused. And of course, we have to understand that uh, there are different people, there are different views, and uh, there are different situations. Uh, speaking about the numbers of casualties, I think uh, maybe 200,000 is a bit too much. But it is really definitely about 100,000 and maybe uh, 150,000. So uh, we cannot count because their official um, bodies, their official institutions never give us any data. Uh, they stopped uh, announcing uh, numbers of casualties already for, uh, for months. Uh, but uh, at the same time, just you go to some provincial town, you see the cemeteries, and you just see that there are whole new sections 
uh, at cemeteries, which are uh, kind of specially dedicated to the victims of this war. Uh, they're expanding cemeteries. It's a very, um, uh, very kind of tragic um, fact that uh, just physically uh, they're just doing a lot of work to expand cemeteries massively uh, to give the ground for more um, bodies to be um, buried there. Uh, so uh, it seems that there is also um, kind of a feeling that uh, there should be more casualties soon. In the 1960s and the early 70s, the Americans, I think, lost uh, somewhere around 60,000 soldiers in Vietnam. And a very significant anti-war movement developed. Is there something like that developing in Russia? Not exactly for one reason. Uh, there is an anti-war movement and it is strong uh, enough, but uh, there are two differences which we have to consider. One is that Russia today is a very authoritarian state. I mean, it's now much worse compared to what it used to be even two years ago. So in that sense, there is a lot of repression. There are quite a few people who are jailed and there is a tremendous effort on the side of the authorities to suppress any kind of uh, opposition media, any kind of opposition opinion. Uh, and uh, if you protest actively, uh, then you end up in jail immediately, just immediately. Uh, so there is no legal space for, for protest. And uh, also quite a few people left the country. So we see a massive uh, exodus of people who were um, trying to avoid uh, the draft. Uh, we have different data, nobody calculated the numbers, but it is about one million people definitely who left the country just to avoid the draft. As you know, uh, the government managed to draft about, uh, there are different estimates because also they don't tell the, the real data, the real information, but anyhow, uh, their uh, estimate is that they managed to draft about 250,000 people uh, for the army, and uh, about one million at least uh, fled, left the country. So five times more than they managed to force into, into the army. Well, this is one side of the story. But there is the other side of the story, which is also very important. Who are those people who are drafted into the army? And here we come to the big social problem, partly understandable for the Americans, I think, because uh, in the United States after the war in Vietnam, uh, they also changed the uh, policy and they introduced what uh, sometimes sociologists call uh, the poverty draft, which means that they were trying to uh, get into the army uh, people from the depressed uh, social layers, uh, depressed areas, and so on. Uh, so for those groups, getting into the army sometimes uh, is a good opportunity to earn money uh, for their families. And uh, this is exactly what is happening in Russia now, because once they're trying to uh, press uh, people in Moscow or St. Petersburg or Nizhny Novgorod or Irkutsk or Novosibirsk, these kind of... Uh, urban, modern uh, centers, uh, then every time uh, there is a lot of resistance, people just disappear. They just uh, leave the country, they uh, leave their uh, their flats and they run away. 
uh, well, there were uh, cases of violent resistance, including one case of a uh, military uh, representative who was uh, in charge of drafting people, was simply killed in Irkutsk by one of the people whom he tried to draft into the army, and so on and so on. And by the way, this guy who killed the officer uh, is uh, in jail, of course, because he did it openly. He, he just came to the office and uh, and shot uh, at, at the officer. And, uh, and now he's in jail, but they are afraid to put him on trial uh, because uh, the guy is so popular. Uh, if they put him on trial, there'll be hundreds of people who will come uh, to the court uh, rooms or to the court building uh, to support uh, the guy. Uh, so he is in jail, but there is no no, no trial. But uh, this is what is happening in big urban centers. And then you go to small villages, to depressed towns, uh, also to some depressed regions of the country. And there you discover a completely different picture because quite a few people say, okay, uh, at least they're paying, at least they're paying. So once you get drafted, it's a good news. Uh, because the family is going to get money. People were unemployed or they had uh, shitty jobs which uh, didn't pay at all. And the uh, families were in uh, very bad shape. And then all of a sudden, uh, when a boy, uh, your, your son or your husband gets drafted, uh, then uh, uh, the family gets uh, money. Uh, and uh, the economists even... Uh, announced uh, that uh, in these areas, the economic situation, the, uh, the income, the average income uh, increased visibly, visibly. And more, uh, also, there were uh, cases, uh, people were interviewed by sociologists, and uh, the sociologists, of course, asked uh, a quite reasonable question, uh, what about you getting killed? And the answer, the most typical answer was, okay, but that's also the good news because uh, my family will get money for that. Uh, I'm going to die for my family. I, I will be ready to die for my family. Nobody says, almost no one says, I'm going to die for Putin or even I'm going to die for Russia. They keep saying, I'm going to die if necessary, I'm going to die for my family. The family will get the money and that will be um, a, a, a real support for, for the household. Uh, and um, at the same time, uh, there are a lot of protests among the draftees and uh, also among the families. But it is also shocking that quite a lot of protests among the families are about the cases when families don't get the money uh, for the uh, killed men. Uh, so that uh, they were kind of expecting to get a lot of money. It's really a lot of money, according to Russian uh, standards. It's up to 6 million uh, rubles for a uh, soldier who died. It, it's a lot of money, really a lot of money. How much is that in dollars? Um, it's, uh, it's about uh, $80,000 approximately. Uh, it's a lot of money. It's really a lot of money. For poor Russian families, it's, it's, it's a real lot of money. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, uh, quite a lot of families don't get this money, of course, uh, because they're trying to invent all, sort of, all sorts of uh, ways to uh, avoid paying. 
uh, like um, uh, saying, uh, well, your son or husband missed an action rather than got killed. So we have no no information. He was missing an action. And, you know, that means that you, you can keep it forever. Uh, we still don't have the information for everyone who was uh, killed in the Second World War. Uh, we don't have all the names and so on. So, uh, so they either say your um, son was um, not killed. He, he's, uh, uh, How long can this go on? I don't know, but I think, well, the main problem is not with those people who uh, suffer directly from the war. That's the big problem. As I told you, there is enormous discontent but this discontent is located in the uh, big cities uh, with a modernized and uh, uh, urbanized uh, population. And of course, these cities are essential, they're important, because also the majority of Russians are now living in these uh, uh, big uh, centers. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we still have quite a lot of people who are uh, living in these depressed uh, small towns and areas. Uh, it's about one third of the population of the country, approximately. And uh, there, uh, they face the, the worst consequences of the war. And at the same time, there, they, there are uh, less uh, protests, uh, less discontent and so on. So this is exactly the problem. So the most uh, protesting, dissatisfied, uh, the, the angriest, the angriest areas are those ang areas which suffer the, the least uh, from what was going on. Uh, and uh, uh, my feeling is that uh, the popular discontent is not going to be the major problem. The major problem is elsewhere. The major problem is with the, uh, with the bureaucracy and, ironically, with the military themselves. Because there are uh, plenty of signals coming from the military, also from the security apparatus, uh, and from the bureaucracy that these are exactly the groups which are most angry, which are uh, most unhappy with what's going on, and which are really interested in stopping, because uh, the army is suffering enormous casualties, but it's also losing prestige. It's losing country, it's uh, facing enormous blows, uh, which are destroying the structure of the army. And uh, also, uh, it, uh, this war is revealing the real weakness of, of the Russian military, which makes military extremely unhappy. And uh, they really are interested in stopping. They're really uh, kind of saying enough is enough. We have to stop. We have to do something to uh, reorganize uh, the military apparatus because uh, the war reveals that Russian army is uh, only a pale shadow of what it used to be historically, so we have to do something about it before doing anything else, before starting any new war, and uh, also, well, uh, they're not very happy with fighting Ukrainians anyhow, because uh, many of them, uh, they, they personally know their adversaries, they used to, many of them used to serve in the very same Soviet army, or at least they used to study uh, the very same uh, military academies and so on and so on. So totally unhappy with uh, with this kind of war. So the military are uh, the main opposition. And uh, also it is very clear that 
now uh, Putin is pushing the military to go into a new offensive, and it's, uh, there are rumors, which I think are correct, that the generals are doing everything to prevent that happening, because it, first they know it's not going to uh, produce any results, and second, they, they don't want to do it anyhow. The arms manufacturers are loving this. The Americans and NATO have been saying they'll stand on the principle of Ukrainian sovereignty until the last Ukrainian's dead, of course. This could go on for a hell of a long time. It's kind of a stalemate where people on both sides keep getting killed. Not exactly. Not exactly. I don't think it's going to be a long stalemate. There is a stalemate right now, but it's not going to continue forever. Uh, first of all, uh, yes, Ukraine is suffering a lot. But don't forget, they're uh, getting a lot of civilian casualties, which is not the case of Russia. And that makes the situation very different. So uh, when uh, the uh, cities are bombed, uh, when uh, almost daily there are attacks on uh, civilian uh, targets in uh, Ukraine, uh, partly, by the way, it's not because it's a conscious uh, uh, decision of the Russian military, but partly because it's uh, just, uh, it's a war, it's a war, you know, there, are all, there is always this kind of, this famous collateral damage, remember, this is another American famous uh, formula, uh, so the, the, it's not always that Russians, uh, Russian military want to hit uh, civilian targets, uh, there is a lot of collateral damage, but anyhow, uh, there are civilians uh, getting killed almost daily in Ukraine, and that makes the situation very different. And uh, Ukrainians are forced to fight back. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's going to continue forever, because as I told you, the Russian military is unhappy. Uh, it seems that security services are not very happy with this either. And uh, local uh, administrative apparatus, the bureaucracy, uh, very unhappy. Also, the business is not happy with, with what's going on because the economic situation is deteriorating very fast. Uh, so uh, there is a growing lobby within uh, the elite, within the state, uh, against the war. Uh, and uh, the main problem is not uh, that a uh, Russian state is going to fight forever. Uh, the main problem is elsewhere. The main problem is that uh, Putin himself and his closest entourage cannot find the way out. Uh, they cannot find the solution which is not going to damage their prestige and their political positions. And that is the main problem. And uh, I think they're getting exactly what they deserved. Uh, but uh, there are rumors that uh, the uh, elite, the broad elite, not the the, the narrow elite around Putin himself, but the broad elite, which used to run the country and which is now uh, getting less and less uh, influential because Putin is concentrating power in its hands. So this broad elite is not only unhappy, they're uh, discussing how to get rid of Putin so, somehow. And I think if things continue the way they, they go, uh, they will do it. They will do it. They'll find the way. Uh, also partly because Putin is ill, he's deadly ill, and uh, of course uh, modern doctors, modern healthcare uh, is uh, really doing miracles. I think any uh, other normal Russian citizen would have been dead already for years with the same diagnosis. Uh, but uh, anyhow, 
there are different rumors that Putin can be declared uh, uh, so ill that he cannot carry out his duties as the president or something like that. So they, it seems they're discussing these things. There are very strong rumors. Uh, and uh, uh, there was just a joke, uh, which, which is uh, the practical joke, which is uh, happening right now. Uh, because, you know, uh, in uh, 1991, when there was an attempted coup d'etat, uh, the famous GKCP state uh, emergency committee, which tried to replace Gorbachev, uh, they uh, started showing uh, the ballet Swan Lake on Russian television. On every channel, there was the Swan Lake shown on every channel of Russian te uh, Russian television. Uh, so the uh, reputation of this great uh, Tchaikovsky's ballet now in Russia is very specific. Every time you're um, going to say uh, something about a possible coup d'etat, you are mm, just using this metaphor that we want to watch uh, uh, Swan, the Swan, uh, watch Swan Lake. It's time for the Swan Lake to be shown, and so that's the kind of metaphor which is typical for Russia. Wait, wait, wait a minute! Typical for the Russian public. And now, what what did you discover that all over Moscow uh, these days, all over Moscow, there is an announcement. Which is true. I mean, it's not a joke. It's true. There is an announcement all over Moscow that on uh, February 24th, uh, there'll be a big show in the Kremlin. Uh, they're going to show the Swan Lake in the Kremlin. And with the anniversary of the invasion, they're really doing it. It's, uh, but you see these, uh, these uh, affiches, uh, these uh, posters all over the, all over the city. And everybody laughs and says, maybe it's just an announcement. Maybe they're just telling us something. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but a very funny one. Uh, and um, it just shows you the mood, you see. Now some people have said, if there is a coup against Putin, it may not be someone who wants to end the war who comes to power. It could be forces who want to fight the war even more aggressively. Uh, it's true that these forces exist. Uh, these uh, forces are usually associated with the name of Evgeny Prigozhin, who is the head of uh, the private military company Wagner. Uh, but we have to understand, first of all, uh, their real capacity, their military capacity is very limited. Uh, yes, they have about uh, 40,000 people, uh, but uh, mostly these people are concentrated uh, in Ukraine at this point. And uh, quite a few of them got killed. And more, there is an open conflict between them and the military. And the military are trying to undermine them uh, by not supplying them properly with uh, with equipment, with, uh, with uh, the ammunition, and so on. So actually, it's almost like a kind of war between the military and the, the, the Wagnerites. So they're trying to... Um, make the Wagner uh, group pay the highest price possible for what's going on. And uh, I think if, if there is a clash between the military and the, uh, the groups like Wagner, uh, the military will have the upper hand, definitely. They're much stronger and much better organized and much more motivated, by the way, uh, because also these uh, so-called uh, ultra-patriots, also very confused and demotivated. There are lots of quarrels among them. Uh, and uh, yes, some of them are very unhappy, but even among these people, there is a growing mood that at least at this stage, uh, the war should be stopped. 
Uh, maybe something has to be done. Maybe have, we have to start a new war soon, uh, but not at this stage. For progressive people outside Russia, outside of Ukraine, you know, Americans, Canadians, Europeans, people from the South, uh, what should they be demanding of their governments? Should they be, de should they be demanding a push towards some kind of compromise, a way out for Putin and Russia? And of course, part of that argument is the more desperate Putin gets, that's assuming he's getting desperate, uh, there may even be the possibility that he might actually use some kind of tactical nuclear weapon. I saw one Chinese editorial uh, that's uh, from Global Times uh, that actually said if Putin fears for his own life, that the kind of desperate measures could get very desperate. They didn't use the word nuclear weapons, but that was clearly clearly what they were hinting at and, and were concerned about. Well, I don't agree with that because I think, uh, again, uh, the military will not allow uh, those so-called desperate measures. You see, you cannot use specific weapons without the agreement of those people who technically use these weapons. And... Uh, it is very clear that the, the, the generals, at least some of the generals, are quite dedicated uh, to stop the war. Uh, and uh, if the war is going to be stopped, it's going to be stopped on our side, and it will be exactly the Russian military and security apparatus which is going to stop the war. Uh, how and when uh, they will do it, this is a different story because it's very difficult also. Can't, you can imagine, given the kind of state we have, uh, also, given the fact that these people are really patriotic, they're not going to undermine their uh, the real security status of the country. Uh, but they're quite dedicated to, uh, at least to some some kind of uh, way out uh, to be discovered, and uh, uh, the solution will be f will be found on this side, on our side. Speaking about uh, the West, you see the problem is that all kind of compromises which are acceptable for Putin are compromises which are um, which are unjust in in their very nature, in the sense that they have to uh, give Putin the uh, the way uh, to present this war uh, as a victory, uh, at least to some extent and to consolidate uh, the regime, which will be the worst thing for Russia possible, you see? If this regime gets reconsolidated again after what happens, uh, it's going to be the most tragic outcome for Russia, which you can only imagine. So in that sense, the defeat of uh, Putin is definitely a better outcome uh, for the Russian society, for the Russian uh, people, than his victory. And it doesn't mean that we have to support the Ukrainian government and the West, because we know pretty well that Ukrainian government is uh, um, almost as oligarchic as, as the Russian government. And uh, it is definitely uh, the government which is responsible for quite a few uh, injustices and quite a few uh, things which we should never support. And in that sense, it's not a kind of war when we can can uh, say that these are the, the the angels fighting the devils or something like that. Uh, but we also have to remember that this time it was 
uh, the Russian uh, government, which started the war, which uh, launched the attack, and which occupied the territory of, of uh, our neighbor. And this is also very important. I just have to remind that in 2014, I was uh, critical of the Ukrainian policy of military intervention in uh, Donbass. I think it was not only wrong, it was a criminal policy because they uh, started the war. They were responsible for their uh, impressive number of casualties on both sides and so on. There were ways uh, to solve the problem easily uh, with peaceful means, or, or at least there were ways to uh, develop this conflict without killing people and so on. So uh, in 2014, I was absolutely negative about what Ukrainian government was doing even though I had no illusions about what was Russian government doing on its side. And uh, uh, this time, it's the other way around, for me at least, it's the other way around. Uh, I know pretty well that Ukrainian government is not uh, deserving uh, much of my sympathy, uh, but this time it is Putin and his entourage who started the war, who are responsible, and in some way or another they have to be punished. And of course, I think they have to be punished by the Russian people in the Russian society and hopefully by the Russian military in one way or another. I think it's going to happen. Uh, and uh, in that sense, what the Western left should do, what progressives should do in the United States and Canada and in Western Europe, first of all, they have to support the peace movement in uh, Russia, first and foremost. Uh, the peace movement exists. And by the way, uh, there is a... Uh, there is still a, a serious development of uh, some kind of underground media, of uh, informal media, and so on and so on. So the, the official media is completely closed down. I mean, the, the opposition media is closed down, but we have uh, a very strong presence uh, online, on YouTube, uh, up to the point that now uh, Putin's deputies uh, in the Duma discussing closing down uh, YouTube at all and probably closing down the internet at all, which will be technically, economically a disaster. Uh, and so far they failed to do that. But I mean, there is, there is a, a movement, there is a, uh, there is a very strong tendency and um, a very strong presence of those people who are uh, against the war. Um, of course, quite a lot of people left the country, but there are plenty of people who are inside the country who are, who are not afraid to speak out uh, as our RAPCOR uh, YouTube channel uh, speaks uh, out against the war uh, almost daily and uh, we're still here and we, we continue. Uh, we have problems, as I told you before, we have quite a few problems, but we, we continue to, to operate and we will continue to operate. One of the slogans that's being given amongst some of the anti-war movement in the U.S. is Russia out of Ukraine and put an end to NATO. What, what do you think of that? Well, I agree. I agree. Uh, I should say more. I think uh, it's not only that Ukraine shouldn't join NATO. I think uh, NATO and all military blocs uh, should be dissolved for good, you see. Uh, that should be our end goal, at least. Uh, it's not that there should be some kind of military bloc around Russia or China against uh, another bloc uh, around the United States or America. We have to fight to... Uh, to dissolve all the military blocks of that kind. And uh, by the way, 
that can be the long-term outcome of these uh, confrontations uh, now, because uh, you see, even uh, if Russia gets uh, defeated and uh, leaves Ukraine, uh, the question has to be solved in the sense that you have to have some sort of peace and security conference for Europe or, or, or Eurasia. There should be some kind of long-term solution, uh, maybe like the, sec the new Venice Congress, uh, which as you remember, uh, was in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars and so on, because there should be some kind of long-term uh, decision about uh, guaranteeing peace and security for, for everyone. And it's not going to be achieved just uh, through uh, the victory for one side. Even if one side wins, there should be some kind of uh, long-term negotiated settlement for uh, for the world and, and for Europe and so on. But there is one more point I wanted to stress, speaking about Western progressive and Western uh, left, uh, because there is one very dangerous tendency in, uh, also in Ukraine, in, in, in the West, and by the way, among Russian liberal or right-wing immigration, uh, who are blaming uh, all Russians for what's going on. Uh, they're going to try to present Russian society and Russian people as being responsible uh, for the war, for the crimes committed, for Putin and so on, which is totally unjust. Uh, we know that there is a lot of resistance. We know that uh, the main victims of what's going on are Russians at this point. And uh, also, it's absolutely absurd to pretend that Russian culture uh, is uh, to be blamed for what's going on. Russian language is to be banned and so on and so on. It's absolutely disgusting, I think. And uh, we have to resist that. We have to fight back because, uh, uh, well, uh, this whole idea of collective responsibility, uh, first of all, it is unjust to those who resisted uh, these policies. But it's also... Uh, a way to uh, somehow save those who are really responsible. You see, there are always individuals and social groups which are concretely responsible for what is happening. And instead of saying that every Russian is to be blamed, every Russian is to be somehow punished for what's happening, you should say, no, 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 it's not about every Russian. It's about particular concrete individuals and groups which have to be punished at some point. The last time I interviewed you, there was an advisor to Zelensky who you were somewhat positive about. And he'd been speaking on Ukrainian television in the Russian language. And he was criticizing this attempt to vilify all Russians. But if I understand it correctly, he's, he's now resigned and has been publicly critiquing Zelensky and the government for pursuing just this kind of Russophobia. Um, what do you make of that? Exactly. This is Alexei Aristovich. And by the way, some people see him as a potential uh, president uh, of Ukraine in the future. Uh, he's a very uh, special personality because, uh, of course, sometimes he says a few things which I will never agree with and uh, a few scandalous things also. Uh, he's, a, he's a character, so to speak, you know. Uh, so, in that sense, 
we should not just agree with everything he says, but uh, the point is that he has a very strong position on Russian language, on uh, Ukrainian ethnic Russians, and on Russia itself. So, uh, because, uh, well, he uh, keeps saying that Russian language uh, should stay as uh, the second official language, or at least the second language in Ukraine. So, Russian language should be defeated, de defended, should be defended. Uh, should uh, Russian speakers should have the right to speak their, their mother tongue. And uh, Russian culture is essential for Ukraine itself, which is exactly right. Uh, Kiev was one of the uh, historic centers of uh, Russian culture. Quite a few Russian writers and uh, poets, because, as you know, were born in, in Ukraine and in Kiev. And uh, in that sense, Ukrainians have the... Uh, have all the reasons to appropriate Russian culture their, as their own. Instead of rejecting it, they have all the reasons to say, this is our culture as well. This is our language as well. We have the same rights, the same uh, uh, claims for this language as uh, as Russia has. Uh, this language is no no more Russian uh, for, for the Russian state than, than it is for the Ukrainian uh, society. And uh, this is a very strong uh, position of... Uh, Aristovich, he keeps uh, insisting on that, and uh, he gets attacked. And also he keeps saying that uh, uh, there are uh, positive uh, tendencies in Russian society which should be encouraged. Uh, so on, on these issues he has very, very progressive positions. But of course, uh, you know, sometimes I suspect that he is a kind of Ukrainian uh, imperialist. Uh, so, because uh, sometimes I, when I listen to him, I have a suspicion that he wants uh, um, some kind of Ukrainian empire to be built on the ruins of Russian empire. Uh, this kind of uh, approach is sometimes uh, kind of visible in, in his speeches, including sometimes his... Uh, uh, pre presenting Ukraine as a potential hegemon, uh, potential hegemon for for the eastern for the whole of Eastern Europe. So this kind of uh, <laughs> great Ukrainian, great Ukrainian empire to be built on the ruins of of, of the Russian Empire. That that's not the kind of a, the kind of approach I would be very happy with. Last time we talked, and I think it bears discussing again because I'm, what I'm about to say hasn't gone away. There are people in the American left and Europeans, certainly the global south, that primarily blame NATO for the war. China more or less takes that position. And it's essentially that Putin was provoked into the invasion. The 2014 coup, the talk about Ukraine joining uh, NATO, uh, although I think that was highly exaggerated, but still there's a lot of conversation about it. and and. Uh, the argument gets repeated. The idea that the primary villain of this piece are the Americans and Putin was responding to that. What do you make of that argument? Well, I understand why this opinion is, uh, is, is, is emerging. Uh, because uh, Americans did a lot of terrible things to all sorts of uh, places. Uh, and uh, if you're if you live in, in Asia or Latin America or Africa, uh, you rarely um, 
face any problems with Russians. You face a lot of problems with American imperialism. So, uh, uh, so American imperialism in this case will be your primary problem, much more than Russian imperialism. Uh, so, Russian imperialism, whatever you call it, uh, is a problem for uh, for the former Soviet Union countries, for the countries which were part of the USSR, for the uh, for the Russian society itself, it's a major problem. Let's be clear: the main problem with Putin uh, is um, for Russians, for Russian society, and so on. Uh, so, in that sense, of course. That kind of approach is understandable, but unfortunately, it's not correct. It's not correct in the sense that uh, one of the great problems with uh, with Putin's war is exactly that it is objectively strengthening uh, American imperialism. It is objectively working against the traditional uh, goals of uh, peace movements. Uh, because objectively, Putin uh, gives the reasons, the arguments uh, to those who want to strengthen NATO, who want to expand NATO, who want to expand military industries, and so on and so on. Because th that's that's exactly how it works. Uh, Putin's responsibility, Putin's uh, to Russian, Russian oligarchy's uh, responsibility, their responsibility is that they actually destroyed much of the uh, of the theological and moral grounds on which uh, global peace movement and uh, many progressive movements in Europe at least existed for years uh, so if not destroyed they undermine these moral grounds because of course now it's not easy and I think in many ways it's not possible to say for example we should not uh, supply weapons to to Ukraine uh, just because we are for peace, because we know that the other side is not going to stop fighting. So uh, stopping supplying weapons f to Ukraine means just stopping supplying weapons to one side and making the other side continue fighting and bombing and so on. Uh, this is uh, not possible. But on the other hand, if you're uh, if you're saying the opposite thing, like uh, supply more weapons. Uh, uh, develop uh, military industries and so on, you're also doing a, a wrong thing because uh, uh, you're playing into the hands of those people who are reactionaries, who are uh, historically responsible for quite a few uh, crimes against peoples all over the world. So in that case, uh, most people, uh, many of my friends also just prefer to keep silent because they cannot uh, say either thing, uh, uh, make either of, of these two statements, and which is very understandable. So, uh, who is responsible for that disaster? I think Putin, and not just individually, Putin, the Russian oligarch, and uh, and these people in, in in the Russian elite who are who launched this war, they are responsible, and uh, also they are creating tremendous problems inside uh, the Ukrainian society because. Also, they, they're playing in the hands of those who want to get rid of Russian language and Russian culture, who want to suppress uh, the Russian minority, and, and, and so on. So, also, they're playing into the hands of most reactionary forces in the Ukrainian society. Uh, and I hope they will be punished for that his, by, by history. 
but I am quite optimistic because I think that Russian society is not dead. I'm sure that there are forces which are very much beneath the surface. They're very much invisible, but they are existing uh, in existence. They, they exist. They, they, they're real, which will uh, show themselves and which will uh, make us overcome that situation. And we have to change the situation inside Russia. It is possible. It will be possible. And uh, I'm pretty sure that once the situation changes here, once the war is stopped from this end, then we'll see a completely different picture because uh, we have to start uh, not only peace negotiations, we, ha we have to start a real work for a long-term peace settlement, not just with Ukraine, but for Europe. In one of our earlier interviews, we talked about the climate crisis and how destructive it has already been in parts of Russia, especially in Siberia. Uh, a report came out recently from James Hansen, who's been one of the leaders, early leaders, warning people about the climate crisis. And he's now saying we're on our way to 10 degrees warming. Never mind two, three, four. We're on our way to a world that is completely unlivable. The invasion of Ukraine, whatever you make of the reasons why it started, although I have no doubt, again, the primary responsibility is on Putin. But that said, there's no conversation going on at a global level of any significance about what to do about the climate crisis. And add, add to that, we're already into a period where there's virtually no nuclear arms reduction treaties of any kind. The one that's left is not functioning because there's no inspections taking place. Is any of this being talked about, debated in Russian media, amongst the people? Is it in the consciousness of the people? Just how dangerous the world is getting? That, you know, there's more of an ex existential threat than what's happening in Ukraine, uh, assuming it doesn't go nuclear. Well, honestly, I think people are much more worried about the war than uh, about the climate change for the obvious reason. The war is uh, taking place around us right now. And the climate change keeps being uh, seen as uh, something which is kind of postponed. It can and maybe will happen later. But, by the way, uh, I should say that just before the eruption of the war, uh, there were some interesting debates in Russian media about the climate change. And the debates were, uh, in many ways, very positive. I think in many ways, even more positive than in Western countries. Uh, because, uh, first of all, uh, the biggest uh, question was, what can be done positively, not in terms of kind of uh, just, uh, for example, limiting uh, their production, or, but what can be done positively. And, uh, for example, uh, um, there was a big debate about uh, planting forests, uh, mass planting of forests uh, in Russia and, uh, by the way, in Ukraine also. There were discussions in Ukraine about uh, reforestation of the country. Uh, there was a plan to plant uh, uh, a few million, or probably billion, even billions of trees. Uh, in Ukraine and Russia, and that was discussed very seriously among the experts. And uh, that was a very good idea because uh, these are exactly the green jobs. The green jobs in the most direct sense of the word, uh, just uh, planting forests in Russia, 
faces deforestation in, uh, and we have to do something about it. Uh, it also become a real problem for us because it leads to um, to uh, uh, the crisis uh, with water because uh, rivers are uh, getting uh, shallow uh, and uh, that also is creating quite a few problems. Uh, so um, there is an approach. Also, there was a very interesting discussion uh, in the media about who's going to pay the the price uh, for uh, the new Green Deal, if, if we go forward with it. Uh, because in that sense, it's very interesting to quote an article, a brilliant article by a friend of mine, Nikolai Pratsenka, who published it uh, just a few, I think, weeks before the war, saying that, uh, yes, uh, yes to the Green Deal, definitely, but Green New Deal. Uh, but definitely we have to put the, the question, who is going to pay? Uh, uh, there is a corporate agenda about uh, ordinary people and working people uh, being forced to pay the price uh, for their uh, environmental reforms. And the case with the Yellow West in France is very typical in that sense, that they were trying to make ordinary poor people to pay while corporations are, were going to to make profits out of it, so uh, so the uh, the argument made by Protsenko was very clear: we shouldn't allow a green new deal to become a corporate agenda, uh, because uh, the elites can make profits out of everything. They made uh, profits out of destroying planet, they can make profits out of saving the planet. <laughs> it's always about profits. Of course, maybe it's better if they, if they work on, on saving the planet. But uh, again, the question is who is going to pay? It's a social, it's a class question which should be put forward. And I, I really enjoyed this article. I think it's very essential, uh, this uh, way he put the question. The other issue is, what I, just what I mentioned, we're basically in an era an era, period, now where there are no nuclear arms reduction treaties of any kind. There's a massive investment taking place in the U.S., and I know there certainly was a massive expansion planned in Russia. I don't know if they still have the money to do it, but both countries were planning to spend more than a trillion dollars on modernizing their nuclear weapons, and I assume Russia's still going ahead with it. China is now much more expansive in their ICBM program where they had, had been quite modest for decades. We're entering a period that Daniel Ellsberg and others think is actually more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is there any chance of getting some rationality into this uh, situation, some kind of treaty negotiations in spite of what's going on in Ukraine? It depends on what kind of government we are going to have within uh, uh, two or three years from now. Uh, because if we, if we get some kind of uh, new government, uh, which would be not necessarily more progressive, maybe it will be more progressive, by the way, but which will be at least more reasonable, uh, then I think uh, they will be interested in limiting a nuclear arms race for one simple reason. We have to rebuild the economy. We don't have much money. 
Uh, we we can solve the problems, by the way. It shouldn't uh, it shouldn't be said that there is no way we can get the resources to to modern, modernize and um, uh, rebuild the economy. We, we we will get these resources, even if if Russia has to pay the reparations to Ukraine. Because, by the way, this is another irony of the situation. Because uh, again, now some uh, pro Kremlin people. Uh, say that okay, we uh, should not uh, sign a peace treaty uh, because a peace treaty would necessarily mean that we would be forced to pay the reparations for the destroyed infrastructure and uh, uh, buildings and everything which we uh, destroyed in Ukraine. So it, it will be a tremendous cost uh, which Russian economy and Russian society will have to pay. But the irony of the situation is that. Imagine, imagine, uh, Russia won the war and occupied Ukraine. Who is going to pay for rebuilding the infrastructure and buildings? Russia is going to pay anyhow. And by the way, it will be more, because if uh, we take the case when Russia leaves Ukraine, uh, Russian uh, state will have to pay the reparations, but the West will help. The West will at least be forced to spend some money on rebuilding Ukraine. If uh, Russia occupies Ukraine, the West will not invest a single penny into rebuilding Ukraine. Then Russia is going to pay the whole cost of it. So in that sense, it's better to pay reparations than to pay for the so-called victory for Putin, which will be uh, more costly for, for Russian economy. But coming back to the point of nuclear weapons, I should say that, first of all, it very much depends on what kind of government we're going to have. If we get a better government, or at least a government which is partly composed of the very same people, but with the very same people who are going to try to improve their reputation after Putin, which is quite possible. Eh? We're going to have the same, the same bureaucrats uh, who are going to say, okay, now we're good guys, we're not going to invade anyone anymore. Uh, we are going to be like uh, like... Uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany, pretending that we are Democrats and good guys, uh, and then they will not be so much interested in the nuclear weapons. They will be interested in something else. They'll be interested in rebuilding the economy. They will be interested in improving their reputation abroad. And, uh, well, limiting nuclear weapons uh, for Russia in this case will be a very attractive uh, option. Uh, because uh, it allows to save money uh, instead of spending money on the weapons which uh, no one goes to use, at least hopefully no one is going to use. Uh, it's a useless, it's a useless uh, equipment uh, because uh, every time you try to use it, you are in inflicting uh, damage on, on yourself. Uh, you're inviting others to use the same weapons on yourself. Uh, which is stupid, among other things. It's just stupid. And uh, uh, it used to work in the Cold War uh, times uh, in the sense that uh, there were weapons which were existing not to be used, but they guaranteed peace uh, because they guaranteed, at least from this logic uh, of uh, mutual destruction, they guaranteed uh, peace among uh, two uh, big blocks. But now the problem is that we don't have these two big blocks. And um, we have a much more complicated picture. And uh, in that sense, using nuclear weapons, uh, on the one hand, there is a, a temptation to use nuclear weapons on, 
on uh, on the third party, so to speak, on somebody who, for example, who does have the nuclear weapons and so on. But in the long run, it's uh, it's even more dangerous because it's uh, like uh, opening uh, the Pandora box, which uh, brings up all sorts of terrible consequences. Uh, so um, I think. Uh, again, uh, Russian government after Putin quite possibly may start talking about uh, nuclear disarmament. It, it's pretty possible on, on on the Russian side, but only as long as uh, we uh, we do uh, we do the other things. We have to we have to get rid of Putin. Somebody, somebody. Uh, there is no way I can influence these situations. Uh, somebody at the very top. Uh, has to solve the problem in one way or another, uh, then they have to re, uh, reform the government, present it as a kind of new government. Most probably the new government will be very same, very much the same old government with a few new faces, but trying to present itself as, as the new beginning or something like that. I'm sure the West will agree with that because... Uh, they will love to have the, the old bad guys, the same old bad guys again, calling them the new bright democratic, uh, uh, democratic figure, democratic figures as they already did a few times with uh, with other countries. Uh, but then, what Russian progressives sh should do is uh, trying to influence the situation, trying to put pressure on these governments uh, in order to go uh, into much uh, more serious reforms. Uh, also in terms of peacemaking, in terms of disarmament and so on. So I think disarmament is the solution. Uh, if you don't want any more wars, you have to disarm. Uh, this is the, the obvious answer. Uh, not to arm yourself to, to the teeth, but uh, to, to disarm. All right. Thanks very much, Boris. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Let's do it again soon. Yeah. Uh, don't forget to rem remind about Russian descent, uh, Substack. Yeah, certainly. Go ahead and explain that to people. Okay. Uh, also, if you want to follow what Russian opposition, especially Russian left, is uh, doing and saying uh, what's happening here in Russia, please subscribe to uh, Russian descent on Substack. Uh, I sent uh, Paul the link. It's... Uh, a subscription which is paid, uh, but uh, uh, it's not a lot of money, and the money goes also to support some of our activities abroad, which are essential for us. So it will be also the way to support uh, the Russian left and Russian anti-war movement. And you're publishing in English? Yes. Yes, it is done in English. It's specially designed for the English language audience, and we are trying to translate some of the of the best uh, publications, some of the publications of RAPCOR. So uh, these are the ones uh, which we produce uh, for our uh, Western readers. Uh, so the, the publications we translate into English for our Western readers. And soon we will start also doing uh, videos, uh, which of course we do in Russian, but with English subtitles. With English subtitles, you will be able to, to understand what we are talking about, what's happening. Okay, great. Thanks very much. And thank you for uh, watching the analysis.news. Again, please don't forget, we can't do this without your support. Uh, there's a donate button to the top of our webpage. If you're on YouTube, come on over to the analysis.news. I think there's links below the video on YouTube. 
you can also get on our email list. That's the best way to keep up with what we're doing. Uh, YouTube, subscribe. If you're on the podcast, subscribe to the podcast platforms. Uh, and you can watch and, and listen to everything from the website. And that might even be the best, uh, given that uh, YouTube often messes with us. Uh, at any rate, thanks again for joining us.